Today on Government Matters, a global pandemic threatens the business of government. What should federal leaders and contractors do about coronavirus now? New cyber threats and new tools to fight them. Three main messages from Congress's Cyberspace Solarium Commission. And some major changes to cyber structure for the executive branch. Commission co-chair Senator Angus King tells you what's next. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Businesses across the country are closing their doors and sending people home because of the coronavirus pandemic. The federal government doesn't have the same systems in place for telework, so chief human capital officers could have some tough calls to make in the coming weeks. Jeff Neal is former chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. He writes about federal government human capital issues at chiefhro.com. Jeff, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What should people in your former position, Chico's, be thinking about as all of this coronavirus is unfolding? Well, Francis, the first thing they're going to have to start thinking about is how they're actually going to keep the, the business of the agencies going. And, you know, and most people are thinking telework, uh, but telework is not quite as simple as some people think it is. You know, you have to have telework agreements in place, and, and some people look at that and say, well, that's a bureaucratic detail. But those things include things like what kind of access to information you're going to have? Whose equipment are you going to use? What kinds of things can you do at home and what can you not do? You know, we're probably not going to be letting people take top secret material home and, and keep it in their desk drawer at home. So you have to have some sense of what people can do at home. Then you have to have some idea of who can actually work at home. You know, if I'm doing routine office work, if I'm doing HR work, I could do a lot of that from home. But what if I'm working in a social security office where my job is primarily interacting with the public? I can't really send people to, you know, to Betty Lou's house to fill out their social security application. So you get that kind of problem. Then you have a problem in agencies where you have people whose work simply does not lend itself to being done somewhere else. Think transportation security officers uh, at TSA. You know, we're not going to be having people check in at somebody's house. So those folks, as long as there is air travel, are going to have to show up physically to work. And then the entire Department of Defense has a, a massive uh, industrial set of facilities, the, mm -hmm. the shipyards and the, the facilities that rebuild airplanes. And that is factory-type work. That also can't be done at home. So while we have 2.1 million federal employees, we can't think, oh, we're going to send 2.1 million people home. Probably half of those people, at least, are not going to be able to work from home full time. So that's, a, that's going to be a real problem for agencies. One of the major things that I think is different about the private sector compared to the federal government, too, is the level of integration of contractors into the workforce at federal agencies. My sense is that contractors are starting to ask the same questions potentially about this that they asked about the shutdown. What happens if an agency is not open? Will my people still be able to do work? Will I have to send them home? Will I have to furlough them? That kind of thing. They're going to have that kind of question, mm -hmm. and it's going to be an, an interesting issue for some of them. Some of them are actually running the facilities themselves. They are there to, to run a call center, for example, mm -hmm. and they'll probably keep on running their call center as long as 
they have some way to do that without endangering their workforce. But some of them are, are really blended into the federal workforce. So you can walk through an office and you've got, okay, you know, he's a contractor, she's a Fed, she's a contractor, he's a Fed. And so it's a, it's a little different type of setup. Mm -hmm. And in, in those cases, they're going to have some issues when people are told, go home, if they haven't also made arrangements for their employees to work from home. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the, the same restrictions that would apply to the federal government, like access to secure systems, will apply to those folks. So they're going to have to have, they're going to have to have thought about this and worked with their federal clients to figure out exactly how to do it and, and what will make sense for them. And, and it's going to be a, an issue for quite a few of them, I think. Given what we've seen around the country, is now the time for companies to start to do that with their federal customers? Uh, probably months ago was the time to do that. <laughs> uh, right now, if they haven't, they should start immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that the contractors are going to run into is there are contracts that say the work will be performed in a federal facility. So what's going to happen if the agency says, okay, we want everybody to go home, but the contract says they must do the work in the federal facility. Are they going to amend that contract or tell them, you know, ignore the contract and go ahead and do the work somewhere else? Um, about a minute left, Jeff. As a chief human capital officer, should you be waiting on OPM or OMB to tell you how to set policy or should you be moving out? They should be moving out right now. Uh, OPM has put out some very broad guidance and encouraged people to increase telework and encourage people to look at things like sick and annual leave and they need to start doing that now and not wait for detailed uh, directions from OPM. I, I don't think they're going to get detailed directions that will tell them how to do everything they need to do in <coughs> their agencies right now. Um, is that a bad thing necessarily? No. No, I would, I would much rather be able to act on my own. They do have a lot of authority under, uh, under the law right now and under existing regulations to act. For example, giving people advanced sick leave or advanced annual leave, they could do that right now under their own authority. Jeff Neal, thanks very much. Our coverage of the impact of the coronavirus on the federal marketplace continues at 8 and 11 every night this week on WJLA 24-7 News. We want to hear from you. You can email us your questions to info at govmatters.tv or tweet us at govmatters.tv. Up next, fighting off cyber attacks. Senator Angus King lays out the government's best options for defending the digital realm. More Government Matters straight ahead on ABC7. Welcome back. United States cybersecurity policy needs major work from Congress and the executive branch to defend the country's networks and people. That's what the Cyberspace Solarium Commission found after it studied the cyber issue for almost a year. Senator Angus King of Maine is a co-chair of the commission. He says that commission has three main messages in its new report. Cyber is not an academic idea. This is happening every day. I talked to a utility executive, Francis, who gets hit three million times a day mm -hmm. in their utility. So this is happening to the financial sector, the government, the Defense Department, telecommunications, you name it, people, people's identities are at risk. So the cyber threat is very real and it's happening. It isn't something that is going to happen five years from now. It's happening right now. So mm -hmm. that's number one. Uh, number two is we're not very well organized to deal with it. Uh, there's a number of cyber-related uh, factors in the United States government, but they're scattered around and nobody's in charge. There's no central authority. We're suggesting having a national cyber director in the White House 
confirmed by the Senate make it a really important job, which it is. Um, and this, and the, the Congress itself is not organized well to react to this. We've got, I, th I think we counted there between 60 and 70 committees and subcommittees that have a piece of cyber jurisdiction. The result is very hard to get anything done on the subject. So some serious reorganization. The third piece I think is very important, and that is deterrence. Right now, an adversary who's thinking about messing around with our elections or going into the personnel system of, you know, a major American bank or whatever it is, they don't really fear any results. You know, it's, there's no cost. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you and I know if, if you can punch somebody repeatedly and you never get any fear of being punched back, you're going to keep doing it. There's no reason not to. And so a big part of our uh, uh, finding is we need a deterrent strategy that says to our adversaries, if you attack us in a, any kind of substantial way, and it doesn't mean to a catastrophe, it means you know below catastrophe, there's going to be a response. It's going to be prompt and it's going to cost you. Now that may be, in, uh, that, that, we're not saying what the response should be, mm -hmm. but that we have to, we have to put uh, the fear of God in our adversaries, or, or I should say the fear of us, mm -hmm. uh, or they're going to keep at it. You write uh, a number of the five big ideas that you open this report with include references to deterrence. Deterrence is possible in cyberspace. Deterrence relies on a resilient economy, so this isn't just a cyber approach right. to the solutions that the cyber economy requires. Uh, deterrence requires government reform, and we'll speak to that about the structure of the, that you alluded to a moment ago. Deterrence will require private sector entities to step up and strengthen their security postures. This is something the Defense Department's already taking on and civilian agencies are looking at too. And the fifth that you write about, election security must become a priority. Which of those has the most potential, do you think, Senator, to make a difference quickly? I think that I think a a national strategy of deterrence, which the president could announce tomorrow, mm -hmm. would make the most difference quickly. Uh, but I think there, there's really there's not a hierarchy of our recommendations, okay. and uh, you know p part of it is uh, having uh, people, the private sector. One of the complications of this is that 80 percent of our critical infrastructure is held in the private sector. So we've got to be, have really strong relationships with the private sector in order to protect, uh, to protect the country. Uh, and that's a big part of our recommendation. One of the members of our commission was the president of the Southern Company, which is the second largest utility in the country. And he was a key member, a guy named Tom Fanning. He was a key member of our commission to, you know, sort of talk to us about how these, what they call critical infrastructure, uh, can be protected and has to be protected by the people that own it. And the government can set standards and those kinds of things, but we didn't want this to be a heavy regulatory lift. We wanted to see, we want incentives and we want to see the private sector carry their end of the load. That's the nuance, I suppose, as we see with acquisition in across government and so on. The adversaries that we're up against don't have basically any regulatory barrier. Right. So. We're in a unique position in the United States, I think, that we have to consider that some level might be necessary, but too much could be That's too right. much. That's right. But, but you know, th this is a, uh, as I say, the, the relationship between the government and the private sector is, is so important here. And if we don't get that right, then, you know, we can do a lot of other things. But 
but it isn't going to work. And uh, that's why part of our recommendation is resilience, is, is being able to resist. So the adversary says, well, why bother? They're, mm -hmm. they're going to be able to fend it off. But we also want them to have to calculate what's this going to cost us. There are three layers uh, that you describe, you and your colleagues in this report, um, in a layered cyber deterrence, shaping behavior, denying benefits, and imposing costs. We've kind of touched on the first two, I think. Yeah. I'd like to explore the third one, though, imposing costs. By whom, who in our country should be imposing the costs on uh, perpetrators from outside the United States and how? What does that look like in your view? Well, the first the, the first line of defense would be uh, Cyber Command, mm -hmm. uh, which is part of the Department of Defense, uh, working with the National Security Agency. Uh, they're the ones that are in and, and uh, able to, uh, I'm trying to think of what the right word is, mess around with the other side's mm -hmm. cyber capability. And that's what they did in 2018. Uh, the the uh, we know the Russians tried to get after the elections in 2018. They weren't as successful in part because we shut them down, mm -hmm. and uh, they knew that we were in their uh, in their networks, uh, uh, and and I think that uh, acted as a as a as a stopper. Uh, the president obviously is going to have an important role to play. I mean, the president ultimately has to decide when the country is going to react and how they react. One complication here, Francis, is attribution, figuring out who did it. Mm -hmm. And our adversaries are getting much smarter about routing uh, malicious uh, software, whatever it is, through third countries and fourth countries and fifth countries. And mm -hmm. But we're getting pretty smart too. So we have to be able to attribute who did it. And then we start talking about uh, how, to, how to stop them. Now, one important point is one of our recommendations is we need to work with the rest of the world. If you think about it, we've had a thousand years or more to w develop the law of war mm -hmm. and all, you know, all the sort of guardrails, no chemical weapons, for example, which is occasionally violated, but not very much. Uh, we've had 20 years to figure this out. So we don't have an international consensus about what the rules are. That's something we think there should, we, we need to work on that. More with Senator King in just a moment, a new cyber leader in the executive branch and a stronger cyber bureau at Homeland Security. That's straight ahead on Government Matters. Welcome back. The recommendations of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission include a presidentially appointed Senate-confirmed national cyber director that would report directly to the President of the United States. I asked Senator Angus King of Maine, a co-chair of the commission, to describe the credentials he thinks that cyber director should have. Ideally, it would be certainly someone who has some depth of knowledge in the cyber area, somebody who's worked in it uh, either in the private sector or the public sector, and also a, a person that has, well, they've got to have the confidence of the president. Mm -hmm. That's an important criteria. Um, and some knowledge of foreign policy and, you know, working between states. Mm -hmm. The reason we made that recommendation, the, the model that we used was the U.S. Trade Representative, mm -hmm. which is a Senate-confirmed position in the executive office of the president that has that status. Uh, and it's an ongoing position. Uh, this isn't something you stand up for a year or two and then you forget about it. It's really a, a necessary 
an ongoing function. And one of the things I, I've said to people in the past, one of my principles of business was, I want one throat to choke. Mm -hmm. I consider this a favor to the president because it gives the president one person who he or she can hold responsible for this area rather than a kind of amorphous structure throughout the federal government where you've got, uh, you've got Cybercom, you've got DHS, you've got the FBI, CIA. I think it's a, I think it's a, a better for the president in terms of, of, of operational control to have someone in the White House, and if something goes wrong, they can go and say, hey, you've got to fix this, and this person would have the authority to be above all those agencies and, and uh, knock some heads. The commission's also recommending strengthening the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security. That's an organization that is still in kind of its formative stage anyway. What does that look like in its maturity according to the vision of the commission? Well, the, the, we think that's one of the most important agencies in the government. And it has done a good job with limited authorities and limited funding. Uh, but they're the sort of inter direct interface between the government and the private sector and the states, for example. Uh, they're the ones that are working with the states on election security. Uh, they, 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 we, we see them as the, the crucial interface uh, with, with corporations, with, uh, with uh, the state, you know, secretaries of state, and that kind of thing. Uh, I think uh, that, that agency, we've, we've, we didn't want to create a whole new bureaucracy, mm -hmm. but we said, look, we've got an agency here that's doing a good job. Uh, Chris Krebs, who's the guy, guy running it now, is a, absolutely terrific, and he, he gave a lot of input to our commission. Uh, but we think that they are, uh, rather than creating something new, we say, let's take what we've got now and build on it. You mentioned earlier in our conversation there are 60 to 70 committees and subcommittees that have jurisdiction over cyber. Right. It's exactly the same situation that the Department of Homeland Security has been in over its entire history. What would have to happen for that consolidation to work? You recommend a permanent, uh, House Permanent Select and Senate Select Committee on Cybersecurity. Right. What would have to happen to make that work so that those were the committees of jurisdiction? Well, the, the, the leadership of the Congress has to has to step up and say, this is something we want to do. The analogy, again, we're not reinventing things, was in 1976, we had the Church Commission, uh, Senator Church, and they, they were looking into uh, the oversight of the CIA and our intelligence community, and it really wasn't adequate. That's when they created the two committees that are now part of our structure, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence that I sit on and the House uh, Intelligence Committee. And that's really what we're talking about, because th at that time, Intelligence matters were strung out over a whole, mm -hmm. whole bunch of different committees. Uh, let me give you a, a story about why we think this is important. Jim Risch and I, Republican senator from Idaho, had a bill three and a half, almost four years ago, on uh, how to uh, improve the security of the grid, of the electric grid. It was a, a pilot program working with the Idaho National Lab and volunteer. It wasn't mandatory. It wasn't new rules. It, it was very vanilla and, mm -hmm. and uncontroversial, no opposition. It took four years to get it through. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. Just if, if you can't do something that essentially is unanimous and it takes that long, that indicates to me that you got a structural problem because, and, and look, if we have a serious cyber attack, you think I can go back to Maine and say, well, we knew this was coming, but we had four different committees and 22 subcommittees, and we just couldn't get ourselves. That's not going to mm -hmm. cut it. So we're suggesting, and this is not going to be easy, 
I mean, we're talking about congressional committees giving up a little slice of their jurisdiction. But we're trying to figure out a way to, 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 to cross that hurdle. Uh, but we think that you, you, we've got to have a, a more coherent structure in order to get a more coherent policy. Very quick final thought, Senator. Right. Um, when you and Congressman Gallagher started work on this, your co-chair on the commission, uh, I ask you this question, I'll ask it again. What makes this work rather than just another report that sits on a shelf? What makes this actionable? Well, that's the right question. And, and I think in part, the first answer is the structure of the commission. We have four sitting members of Congress who happen to all be on key committees. I'm on armed services and intelligence. Ben Sass is on intelligence. Mike Gallagher is on armed services. Jim Longevin in the House is on armed services. He's the chair of one of the key subcommittees. So we start with, you know, people within the system uh, who are committed to the to the work of the commission. Uh, we have people from the executive branch involved. We had a director of national intelligence, FBI. Uh, uh, the Department of Defense and DHS, all were at the table. Uh, change is hard. You know You know the old saying, mm -hmm. every, everybody's for progress, no one's for change. Uh, but I think we've, uh, we've, we've really got a running start. In fact, one of the things we're doing that I don't, I don't know if it's ever been done before, all of our legislative recommendations, we're going to present legislation. We're going to have an appendix of, of legislative bills. So we don't, it's not like, we're going to say to the Armed Services Committee, this we think would be a good concept. We're saying, here's the bill. Mm. We're going to make it easy for them. You can see my entire conversation with Senator King or any episode of Government Matters that you might have missed on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.